Genesis chapter 15, if you would turn there with me, we're going to continue on in this, uh, this big series that we're doing. We're, again, just kind of painting the big picture of the story. And so um, uh, we're taking a look at God's meta-narrative that's being painted, that's being written, and how we play in that today as it intersects into our lower stories. And so in Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 14, we're going to take a look at yet today's uh, uh, new uh, drama as we add to the story. Uh, if you remember the past couple of weeks, we talked about creation. We talked about how God placed, how he created man and, and uh, woman. He created mankind. He placed them in a garden. They chose to uh, go outside of God's uh, guidance. They sinned against God. They were, uh, they were uh, placed outside of the garden. And so instead of God giving up, instead of God uh, letting his run, letting his love run out on us, like we just sang, he doesn't do that. His love never runs, it never fails, and it never gives up on us. God says, I will provide a way to have a relationship with man. I will not give up on mankind. And so God begins to put a story in place. He takes, uh, he goes to a person by the name of Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your name as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars the sky. And so God begins to make, literally make that happen. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about Abraham. We looked at Abraham and, and at what role he played. Last week, we looked at Joseph and we looked at how Joseph's life uh, was a, really a roller coaster. He had some ups and downs to it. But through all of this, we see the mighty hand of God. We see that what God says he's going to do, he will do it. We see that God takes all the little details, all the little intricacies of our lives, whether they be negative whether it be positive, and, and can use them to make something grand happen as he, as he writes his, big, uh, writes his uh, big story of salvation. And so, essentially what we're going to do today, we're going to take a look at after, after Joseph. Uh, last week when we talked about Joseph, we found him, we ended it where he was in Egypt uh, uh, as he was sold into slavery. Uh, he ended up in Egypt. We read or studied and talked about how his family came uh, to him at the end, towards the end there uh, because they, their land was in famine. And so they come to Egypt and they bow down to him. And, and essentially what we, where we're going to pick up on the story is about 400 years later, okay? And so, again, we're just looking at the big topics here. And so, uh, as, as over this 400-year span of time, the Hebrews, as, as they are, which they'll later be called the Israelites, they will become a nation of Israel, but at that time they were called the Hebrews, and at, at, at that point they grew from a small amount to... Uh, Two to three million. It's been approximated. And so during this time, during this 400 years of time, uh, we read that there was a new pharaoh that came uh, towards the end of that 400 years. A, a, a new pharaoh, which would be another word for a king, came into, into that position. That person was intimidated by the new nation. These Hebrews, uh, God building the nation within Egypt. Uh, he was intimidated by the Hebrews, uh, the, the, how, how much how numerous they were, and he feared that they would take over. And so he ordered the death of all newborn Hebrew boys to stop the nation from continuing, or I, I hate to use the word nation, it's God's nation he's building inside of Egypt, but at that time they weren't a nation. Is that? I want to be clear on that. But God was growing his nation, he was growing uh, the, 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 the Hebrews. And so uh, he ordered the death of all newborn Hebrew boys to, to slow that down or to stop that, to thwart that plan. Uh, kind of sounds like a 
very familiar story we'll be talking about uh, next month by, name of the, by a guy by the name of King Herod who also put a decree out uh, such as that. But the, the question becomes, you know, did this become a surprise to God? Was this something where it's like, you know, okay, did God see this coming? Well, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 14, we read this. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Verse 13, then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. God says, God looks at this, and he knew that it was going to take place. Even before he grew uh, the seed of Abraham, he knew what was going to take place. He even shared this with Abraham, saying, this is what's going to happen, but I'm going to continue to make my plan come to fruition. As they were ending in that 400 years, they began to cry out to God. God heard them, and God began to put a, began to unfold the, another chapter of his plan. And so, uh, we read about a a guy by the name of Moses. Now, what we know about Moses is he's going to be the, the central figure of the leader bringing the Hebrews out of Egypt. Moses is, is very interesting because his life shouldn't have been to begin with. As we read this, we read that he would have fell right in this particular decree that uh, when uh, the Pharaoh came into to, to rulership, he became intimidated, he became uh, very threatened, and he, he said that Hebrew uh, males should be put to death. We read that uh, his mom, instead of putting him to death, actually took him and kept him quiet and kept the whole uh, birthing process quiet and when when uh, she started to raise him when he became two to three years old two years old something like that she could no longer uh, maintain that and so she takes him she places him in a basket and she puts him into the Nile River now very interesting part about this is that she uh knew uh, that there was uh, another woman who bathed quite frequently down at the Nile River at a certain time, and that person was Pharaoh's daughter. And so uh, Jochebed, which was Moses' mom, takes Moses down. His name wasn't Moses yet, but takes her baby down to the river, places him in a basket, sends it down to the river. Pharaoh's daughter intercepts the basket, grabs it, takes a look. There's a baby inside. She looks at it. She pulls the baby out and definitely is filled with compassion, right? And so she holds this baby. And, and I can just imagine how this conversation went. As she goes back to her dad, the king, that put this order out, you need to kill every Hebrew child male child, uh, she comes back and says, oh, can I just keep this one? Can't we, can I just keep him? You know, I'm, I'm reading into it, but I guarantee you that's how it happened, right? And I'm sure he probably said something like this, oh, why not? What can, what can one little boy do, right? Well, we're going to read about what one little boy can do. Um, and so Pharaoh's daughter takes him and raises him, names him Moses, which means drawn out of the water, taken out of the water. Uh, she gets a nanny for him. I love this. She gets a nanny for him. Who do you think his nanny is? Jochebed, his mom. And so God just working this story. And, and so, uh, she gets his mother, which, you know, at the time, obviously she didn't know, uh, nor I'm sure she didn't know at all, even later, but she gets his mom, Jochebed, to literally be his nanny. Through this process, I think it's very safe to assume that Jochebed taught him about God, taught him about the the, his people, the way he, you know, uh, his his lineage and all of these other things. Later, as he grows up, he visits his people, 
He, uh, so he understands at some point that he is a Hebrew and also an Egyptian, but he visits his people. Upon this visit to his people, he sees a Hebrew, one of his children, or one of his um, uh, people, become treated very unfairly by an Egyptian taskmaster. Taskmaster. He takes it upon himself to take care of the situation in which he kills the Egyptian. Thinking that no one saw him, he goes about his life, but then he begins to learn that people did see him. The Pharaoh is made known of this, and he orders a decree to take Moses' head. I'll put a head on Moses, essentially. And so Moses, scared of his life, uh, lives to about 40 in the palace. He then leaves, flees from the palace and goes to live in the desert or the wilderness, whatever you want to call it, and begins to tend sheep. Uh, for his father-in-law, as he's tending his sheep, for, tending his father-in-law's sheep, he is comes upon a bush, a sh- whatever you want to call it, a bush, shrub, whatever that is that is that is that is burning. It's it's on fire. But the strange thing about this bush is it's not being consumed by the fire. And so he walks up on, and it gets much stranger, right? He as he walks up on this bush, the bush begins to speak to him, and the bush says, "This Moses, you need to take off your shoes." Because now you're walking on holy ground. God coming and identifying himself to Moses. God would identify himself to Moses. He would also identify his strength and his power to Moses. And so Moses, uh, God reveals himself. And he also reveals something to Moses that begins to bring Moses into all this. And that is his plan. God reveals his plan to Moses. As God begins to unfold this plan to Moses, Moses does what every other person would do that we know, we start saying, well, let me share with you why I can't be a part of this plan. And so Moses starts in all this arbitrating, right? And telling God, hey, you got the wrong person, or God, I'm not so sure I can do this. Uh, But nevertheless, he engages in this conversation. At one point, Moses says this, when I go tell the people that that, uh, you sent me, who do I tell them sent me? And the bush, uh, God says to him, you tell them I am sent you. If we would fast forward uh, years later, we read about another individual saying the same claim, a person by the name of Jesus Christ, before uh, the religious individuals at that time, uh, Jesus saying, making proclamations of, I am, I am the light, I am the bread of life, uh, and and, uh, various others, I am. The religious people at that time knew exactly and very distinctly what he was saying because he was referring to himself back to this particular place where Moses was being, uh, where God was, where God was identifying Himself to Moses, Jesus then therefore was basically saying, "I am God. I am." And so, got Jesus in a lot of hot waters. We will later uh, discover. But nevertheless, back here, uh, Moses says, or the bush says, God reveals Himself to Moses, and He says, "You tell the people that I am sent you." Moses then goes down to the whole, goes down to the whole conversation, starts working through the whole process of, well, who am I then, God? Let me tell you who, you know, let me share with you who I am and, and, and how I, I can't do this. And so, through this discussion, God begins to, uh, share some things with Moses. He begins to share, uh, his, his power to Moses. And God tells Moses, He says, I want you to take your rod and I want you to throw it down on the ground. And uh, so he does, and it turns into a snake. God then says, I want you to reach down, grab the tail of that snake. As he does, the snake becomes his staff or his rod once again. 
Mo, or God tells Moses, I want you to take your hand, stick it inside your coat. As he does, and he pulls it out, his hand is full of leprosy. An incredible, horrific disease at that time that just literally ate, the, ate everything. And so he t- God tells him to take his hand and place it back inside of his coat. In which he does, he pulls it back out and it's made whole again. God would later tell Moses in the same, uh, the same, the same conversation that there's going to be a time where he will take, he will demonstrate himself by him taking water out of the Nile, pouring it on the ground, and it would turn to blood. So Moses hears all this, and then he begins to tell God why he can't live up to this, uh, this, this call, this purpose in which, uh, God is calling him. And, uh, he pretty much lays things out and pretty much comes down to the last one, which is, I, I'm not an eloquent speaker, which we would say, well, he stuttered. And so then God says, well, Moses, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will give you Aaron, your brother, to speak for you. Interestingly, interestingly enough, as we read more into that story, we read as they're wandering around in the wilderness that Aaron actually led the people into idol worshiping by asking them or, or leading them into creating the um, the calf that was uh, the, the 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 idol of the calf made out of gold, and so uh, we realize that uh, you know Moses should probably should have just did what God was telling him to do. Uh, but I think you and I can relate with Moses on that one, right? You know, let me tell you, God, why I can't live up to this. And so Moses finally, uh, you know concedes to it and he says okay let's 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 do this and so Moses uh begins to uh begins to uh unfold this God says this is what you're going to do I'm going to send you before Pharaoh uh the king and I want you to tell him simply let my people go that's a pretty easy message right let my people go my people are crying out to me my people have been living in slavery for 400 years I've heard their cry I'm going to deliver them take this simple message to the Pharaoh let my people go God tells him in the same conversation, when you go to the Pharaoh and tell him that, he's not going to do it. In fact, you're going to tell him multiple times, and each time, I'm going to harden his heart, he's not going to do it. Then that kind of like, okay, you're setting me up for failure here, God. But Moses says, okay, and he goes through with it. He goes and he tells, you know, he, he speaks on behalf of his people, and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh becomes very angry over this whole course of discussion. He becomes very angry and he says, you know what, I'm not going to just not let your people go, but here's what I'm going to do. They're going to, and they were the workforce of the Egyptian, uh, uh, the Egyptian uh, nation. They were literally the workforce. They did all the work. They were, uh, in, they made bricks and, and, and things. And so as, as they were, uh, instructed to do that, the Pharaoh said, they're going to still maintain that same quota, but I'm going to take the resources away. I'm going to make them go get their own resources. So the resources in which was provided for them to do their job, uh, the Pharaoh said, I'm going to make them go get it. I'm not, you know, and they're still going to be made to, to meet their quota. And so I'm sure when Moses came back and laid that on the people, they probably said, you know what? Don't negotiate on my part, okay? Let's have a little recall here. I'm not so sure he's the guy we want going and, run, and speaking for us on our behalf. But nevertheless, that's, so we go through this whole, dis, we go through this whole discourse where Moses goes before Pharaoh. Then we start with the plagues. By the way, when we start with the plagues, there's ten of these plagues. As we read about these plagues, one of the things we understand too is, in Moses' time, there probably, there, there weren't, they didn't have atheists. There weren't people that didn't believe in God. 
what we had in this particular point in time was people who believed in God or gods. The question was, which one was the most powerful God to believe in? And so when God started unfolding these plagues to demonstrate who he was, his character, his, you know, his power and all of these things, when he began to unfold these upon the uh, Egyptians, it has been studied and said that many of these, if all of these, were actually against their gods, plagues against their gods. And so the first one was water to blood. Uh, we, we read about how he turned the water from the Nile into blood. Uh, Pharaoh uh, saw that one. He said, no, I'm still not letting your people go. The second one was frogs. The third one was gnats. The fourth one was flies. The fifth one was livestock died. The, uh, the um, next one was boils. Uh, the one after that was hail. The eighth one was locusts. And then the ninth one was darkness. During this t- entire time, too, as God rolled these plagues out onto the, he- onto the uh, Egyptian nation, uh, we read that Goshen, where the Hebrews lived, was not affected by any of these. But then came the last one. And the last one is what got things stirred up. The last one is what broke the camel's back, per se. The last one is when Pharaoh had the paradigm shift. The last one was the one where all of the firstborn of the families and livestock and all of that would die. And so God begins to uh, share this with Moses and he says, Moses, this one's not going to be exempt from the Hebrews. You're going to experience this one too, but I'm going to provide you a way out. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb. I want you to instruct each and every per, each and every family to take a lamb, a small lamb. I want you to take the lamb. I want you to bring it into your house. I want you to grow up with it a little bit. I want you to get accustomed to it and all these other things. And then I want you to take that lamb and I want you to sacrifice it. I want you to kill it. And he was very specific on how to do this, uh, the, to lay it out, to, to the way to cook it. They had to cook it and all these other things. Uh, and, so, um, and, and, and so with that, what we see is we see a lot of symbolism of the cross taking place. Again, this meta-narrative, this plan of salvation where God says, I'm not only going to release my, these people uh, from their 400 years of slavery, but I'm, pay, I'm doing something much grander, much bigger in the meta-narrative of this upper story. I'm providing salvation for all mankind. And so from the very beginning, we see, or during this, this part, we see the plan of God coming, becoming to unfold. And so as they're told what to do with this lamb, one of the things that they were asked to do or told to do was to take the blood of that lamb and literally place it on the thresholds of their door, which as we see... Uh, as, as, we, as we put it on the threshold of the door, we see, again, a cross. God said, if my death angel comes and he sees the blood of that lamb, of their lamb, on their doorpost, on their door threshold, I will pass over them and I will not take, I will not kill the, the firstborn of that family. A Passover. Providing, providing salvation. Later on, so many thousands of years later, we will read about the ultimate lamb that was sacrificed on the cross. That as we receive the blood, and in fact we're going to celebrate in that symbolism today, as we receive the blood, we receive that, that incredible free gift of grace and salvation. As we receive the blood of Jesus Christ on our lives, God looks at us and when He sees us, He doesn't see our failures anymore. He doesn't see our inconsistencies or our sin uh, some, per se so much anymore, but what he sees is he sees his son, Jesus Christ. He sees the blood of the lamb of, of, uh, of his son upon our hearts, and we are therefore part of his family, his children now. And so, 
as we look at this, there's a couple things I want us to think about. This whole story. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, says this. God says, for, he, writes to the, he, he says to the prophet, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. He goes on to say, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, I don't think the way you think. Your reasoning, the way you think, I don't think that way. And I want you to, I want you to think about this. Just, just kind of lean into this. I've used this illustration before, but I absolutely love it. I think it's so profound and so mind-stimulating. I want you to just lean into it and just listen to these words uh, from, a, from a quote in Mark Batterson's book called The Circle Maker. He says this, The basic unit of measurement is a light year. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second, which is so fast that in the time that it takes you to snap your fingers, light has already circumnavigated around the globe six six times. Six times light has already uh, circumnavigated around the globe. If you could drive to the sun traveling 65 miles per hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it would take you more than 163 years to get there. The light that warms your face on a sunny day, on the other hand, left the sun only eight minutes ago. The one, in one minute, I'll lean into this one, in one minute, light travels 11 million miles. In one day, light travels 160 billion miles. In one year, light travels an unfathomable 5,865,696,000,000 miles. How many of you can comprehend that? That's a light year. That's one light year. Now, just think about this. The outer edge of the universe, astrophysicist tells us that the outer edge of the universe is 15.5 billion light years away. Yet God says, that's the distance between your thoughts and my thoughts. How does that relate to us this morning? How does this meta-narrative, how does this big story, how does God's upper story relate with you this morning? How does it relate with you living in 2012? I think one way it relates to us is when we look at our thoughts versus God's thoughts, who would ever look back and say, who would, why would God ever choose Abraham and Sarah to bring about this bigger plan, this bigger story. Why would you choose Abraham and Sarah, God? It doesn't make sense. How many of you in here this morning, if you were going to populate a nation, if you were in charge of populating a nation, you would choose two individuals that had the problem of infertility? Raise your hand, please. How many of you would say that is a great way to start? How many of us would look at a life such as Joseph? Who his brothers take him, sell him into slavery. His life is in the ups and downs. It's like a roller coaster. There's good things, there's bad things. He spends lifetime in prison. I mean, it's like a roller coaster. But yet at the end of his, at some point in his life, he ends up second in command in Egypt. In which at some point, his brothers come over. And because they're experiencing famine in their land, they leave their land, they come over into Egypt, 
And they beg him for, they ask him for food. And they bow down to him. And it's been told that when they came over to Egypt, they brought in, at, at the end of the day, there was probably about 70 or 71 of them. Hebrews. So many years later, we read that there were two or three million God growing his nation. Does that blow your mind? God says, Abraham, I'm going to make my name great. I am going to populate. Your name is going to be as great as the sands on the seashore. Your name is going to bless all nations. As we begin to as we begin to to traverse through this upper story, God is doing things that just literally blow our minds. God chooses a man by the name of Moses, who was a Hebrew but spent 40 years of his first, uh, first part of his life in the palace, getting to know the palace of Egypt. He then goes off into the desert for another 40 years, attending sheep, and God calls him into the ministry. 40 plus 40 is, how old? 80? How many of you are 80 years old in here this morning? How many of you hope to live to 80? How many of you, when you're 80 years old, if God came to you and said, I've got a purpose for your life. I've got a new chapter that I'm going to write into your story. How many of you would say, let's go, God? I'm sure we would do some of the same things Moses did. Let me tell you why it's not going to work, God. I've got a family, right? I've got grandkids. I can't leave my grandkids. I can't leave this. I can't leave that. I'm too old. I don't have the energy. I can't see. My mind's going crazy. And God says, I'm sorry. Are you writing the story or am I? I don't. Here's the part that I just want to be human with you. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how stupid you think you are. I don't. All of those things literally don't matter. I wonder how many of us, when we look at this big story, we see. That God's plan is unfolding. And it is still unfolding. And that God wants to use you in the writing of it. It's not over yet. We are not in heaven. We are still here on earth. And God's coming to each and every one of us. And He's saying, I am still writing my story. What are you doing? Are you not an instrument or are you? Do you believe in this or do you not? Have you committed or have you not committed? Jesus said it over and over and over again. Somehow I think we have it in our minds that when Jesus was on earth, he gave this big altar call and said, hey, great, now I'll just see you guys when you die. Jesus said, consider the cost. God's writing the story. God is still writing the story. Jesus is saying, if you're a disciple, you will consider the cost, and you're part of this story. Your story is still being written. I get it, guys. Some of you are sitting here this morning, you're saying, you don't understand my story. You don't understand how I messed up. You don't understand how I have some chapters, like we talked about last week, that the heading of those chapters was written by Stephen King. I get that. I understand that some of us think that way. That they're horrific. But here's the issue. God says... I can use that. I will use that. The question is, 
are you willing to allow God to use you to be the instrument as he continues to write this story? Do you understand why you're still here on earth? God's got a purpose for every single one of us. Every single one of us. There's not a person sitting in here that God says, well, you know, maybe you, but not this person. That's not true. God has a purpose for every single person sitting in here. The issue is some of you haven't figured that out yet. Some of you haven't surrendered your life to the point to where you can, you're, you're standing in the presence of God and you're saying, God, my life is in your hands. Whatever you want to do, do it. So be it. So be it. It's not about getting our tickets punched and just kind of sitting back. God said, I want to use you as an instrument to continue to write this big story. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but there are people out there that are going to hell. And God's saying, I want a relationship with, I love those people. Will you be used? Just like Moses was used? I think sometimes we get it to the point where we say, well, man, if it's not this big, huge story, I don't understand what God wants. God wants to use you in every single little detail. There are people you sit next to in work. There are people you sit next to going to school. There are people you, where you buy your groceries, where you get your hair cut. There are every single, where you get your car worked on. I mean, you name it. There are people God is putting you in contact with to have this, this relationship with that says, hey, do you know God loves you? This hopelessness that you feel, this lifelessness, is that a word? Lifelessness? Ness? I don't know. I got too many nests in there. That you can have life? That regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what you're experiencing with your kids, regardless of you experience what you're going through in, with your physical well-being, regardless of what you're going through in, with your job, with the, whatever it is that God loves you, that God wants this incredible intimate love relationship with you, and God wants to use you and give you purpose and meaning. I hope and pray that, that, that as you're sitting in here this morning, if you've received that free gift of grace and salvation, that you put yourself in that type of relationship with God. God, here's, it's a complete surrendering. God, here's my life. Here's my life. When I close, I want to close with a word of prayer. I want to invite you forward to take you, to, for you to symbolize, to celebrate what God has done in your life. To, to think back, to think that some thousand, I mean, what, what are we talking? Almost 3,000, 4,000 years ago? God, further than that, obviously. But God, there was a picture of your salvation in the Bible. God, there's a picture of this meta-narrative, this big story where God's saying, I love you. Where God's saying, I want you to be one of my children. Where God's saying, I don't want you to spend eternity separated from me in hell. I, I want you to have a relationship with me. I love you. Doesn't that blow your mind? That you were thought of even before the, before the foundations of the world. You are, you are special in God's eyes. I pray that as you come, that you celebrate that. That you come in this, in this, this awesome sense of worship before God to say, God, I can't believe how much you love me. And I celebrate in that. If you're sitting in it this morning and you don't have a relationship with God, maybe this is the day where it's finally clicking. Maybe this is the day where you're going to allow the Spirit of God to come into your life and consume you. Or you say, I'm, I'm done. I'm done living my life on my own. It's too exhausting. It doesn't have meaning. It's not producing what I thought it would produce. Maybe today's the day you surrender yourself to God and you, you receive that free gift of salvation. As you come, you're literally celebrating. 
you're, you're celebrating God's love, unconditional love right here. You're celebrating that. You don't have to be a member of Element Church. That has no meaning whatsoever. The one thing that you do have to have is that relationship with God to celebrate in communion. You can't celebrate something you don't have. And so when I close, I want to invite you guys to come. We're going to close out with a couple songs. But I pray that you would take this time, this space, for it to be an incredible time of worship. Respond to God. Respond to the promptings of His Spirit the way you believe that He's asking you to respond. Would you do that as we close uh, and engage in this this next space of worship? God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this incredible love that you continue to just shower on us. God, I thank you that you continue to write your story and that there are still lost souls that are going to come to know you. Maybe there's some today, God, that's going to come for the very first time and turn their life over to you and allow you to live in and through them. God, I pray as we close our time here that your spirit would have freedom. I pray that the distractions that the enemy wants to use right now, that they would not be welcomed. God, that you would protect this time and space. That you would make us uncomfortable. God, that you would bring us out of our comfort zones. That you would bring us into places of celebration and and humility and um, whatever it may be, God. That we would respond to your spirit the way you're asking us to respond. God, we worship you here this morning. We're in your presence. We want to encounter you. And we pray and we ask all these things through the powerful name of your Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.